Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. My first guest is here. He's in situ. He's in the seat next door to me. He is the man who nurtured the career of the now-retired Noel Feely and himself has had a, a most interesting career, both as a jockey, a fearless jockey. He won the Velka Padovička in 1995 on a horse he trained, even though he had medical advice not to ride the horse. He subsequently has trained several hundred winners, including the a diminutive but extremely talented celibate and many others. He is, of course, the outspoken but always entertaining Charlie Mann. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, Nick. And you're looking fresh and, and pretty hale and hearty, given the fact that you were at Noel Feely's retirement party last night. Was it a good send-off for the great man? I think it was, yeah. We had lots of people there, um, lots of jockeys, trainers, and all his family came over from Ireland. So, yeah, it was a good day. And it was a lovely day, wasn't it? A fantastic atmosphere yesterday at Newbury. It was a lovely day. Uh, lovely weather, good racing, ground was great. I mean, everything was good. It all worked really well, actually. And uh, it was a sad day, but it was a good day because... Um, he packed up in one piece, and that's the most important thing. I, I described you as outspoken. You, you're never shy of delivering an opinion on all, all things horse racing and all people in the sport, but about Noel Feely, I've never heard you say a bad word, nor anyone for that matter. I think you're right. I don't think anyone has. Um, I think he didn't get the credit he deserved in that he wasn't really discovered until about seven years ago. And he's been with me. He came to me in 98, and... He ticked away, he rode winners, but he was always good. And someone with his talent, I'm sure it should have been recognised before then anyway. So how did you pick him up in the first place? He went to David Nicholson's for two weeks, and he didn't like that. And I got him through a, a bloodstock agent called Bobby O'Ryan. And Bobby told mm. me about him, and Noel was a point-to-point -point jockey. And um, I managed to get him over, and he stayed with us for about 12 years, I suppose. So having not particularly warmed to the maybe more harsh environment of the Dukes, he came to a sort of more warmer, fluffier, cuddlier environment at, at Charlie Mann's. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be a soft touch compared to the Duke, I think. So uh, it was, uh, he probably got away a bit more at our place than he would have done at the Dukes, yeah. And t to what extent did he help your career at the time? Because you'd probably only been training for, what, five or six years at the time? Yeah, would have done. Um, he, he did help, of course he helped me because um, he's a great judge of pace. Um, he doesn't say a lot after a race, but what he does say, you take on board. Very sympathetic rider and, I mean, you, you, it, there was no holes in what he did. He was, he was, the, he was perfect all-round jockey. And because you'd ridden yourself, and as I said, you, you were quite a fearless jumps jockey, does that make you more understanding of jockeys or does it make you more judgmental of riders, do you think? I think if you've ridden in a race you understand what goes on an awful lot more than if you haven't. And, and the problems that happen in the race, uh, 
horses getting in the wrong position pace-wise. So it must, obviously, if you've ridden in a race, you understand more about what's going on out there than if you haven't. And your own riding career, just take me back to the beginning of that. Where did it, where did it start? It started, um, I was with a fellow called Tony Gillam up in Yorkshire, and I had my first rides for him. And it was, it was going okay, but then I got a phone call from Michael Dickinson, and it was his first season training, and he offered me a job. And at the same time, it was Nicky Henderson's second season, and he'd done okay in, the f in his first season. And I didn't think Michael would make a train, Richie. <laughs> and uh, I got that wrong anyway, but um, I came down to Lambourne, and I don't regret, regret coming down, because I've been there ever since, and um, I've enjoyed it. So you, you were in this position of being a youngish rider, having a job offer from Michael Dickinson and Nicky Henderson. Yeah, more stuff, or less. That's the stuff of dreams, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, it was at the time, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I might have ridden a few more winners if I'd gone to Michael, but at the same time, I've enjoyed living at Lambourne, and I still do. What is it about Lambourne that you, you like? It's close to London, it's close to Heathrow, all, <laughs> all, all the big tracks are an hour away. It's very well situated, but it's a nice village, it's, it's a beautiful countryside, and um, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't live anywhere else. And when you came to, to Lambourne to, to ride, what were your... What were your aspirations then? Were you, were you genuinely thinking you could be the next champion or was it always with a view to training horses in the end? No, I think if you're, if you're young and you're riding, I mean, you've got to set a target and obviously everyone, every jockey's target is to be champion jockey. Um, unfortunately, there's only one person that makes it and you know, it's, it, there's a, probably a lot more better jockeys around and certainly myself anyway, but... Um, yeah, you, I think in any sport you aspire to be the best, and um, I wasn't. What was the atmosphere like in the weighing room in the late 70s, 80s? It was great fun. I mean, I'm sure they've had a lot of fun now, but it's, um, we didn't have drug tests, alcohol tests. and We used to take the mickey out of each other an awful lot. Um, and I remember I rode in six Grand Nationals, and I think I was only sober for two of them, which you couldn't do nowadays, obviously. And I wouldn't have got on the horse if I had had been so, but I promise you that. Was it that terrifying? It was. I mean, I rode two horses I'd never seen before, and they didn't jump. And yeah, I mean, you, you needed a bit of Dutch courage, I think, in those days. And was that was that as standard then? I wouldn't say it was standard, but a lot of people weren't riding the sort of horses that I was. So, um, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's standard now. I mean, it's amazing how times have changed because you can't run a horse that can't jump in a Grand National now. You just have to be a a horse of a, a fairly decent standard but in those days they were running all sorts it was a much lesser I mean the fences were bigger first of all and, and you you didn't tend to run a very good horse in it um, and obviously now you've got you've got to be 145 plus to get into the Grand National mm. in the old days I think it was 110 something like that but I mean it's a completely different race now but so it should be it's worth a million pounds and you've got very good horses you've got gold cup horses running it now so it's changed and presumably for all that you enjoyed your time as a, I'm not going to say a hellraiser, but somebody who enjoyed the game and perhaps needed that Dutch courage to go out and ride in Grand Nationals, you appreciate as a trainer the need to, to put the horses first now. Absolutely. I mean, we can't do our job without the horses, but yeah, the horse is always first in our mind. But, you know, you also have to think about jockeys. Mm. I mean, there's a great thing on a horse welfare, but I mean... 
No one said anything about jockeys getting hurt, and and they're in, you know they're in fact they're very important the jockeys because they're human beings, and uh, so we don't want to see anyone getting hurt. But of course, human beings can can manage their own risk to a certain extent, as you famously did when you made a, a comeback against medical advice. Yeah. In in 1995, just take me back to the beginning of this story because you you broke your neck. Yeah. That's the beginning and end of it, really. Yeah. Uh, when? I broke my neck in '89 uh, in a ordinary hurdle at Warwick and um, yeah, I, was w I was in hospital for three days and they didn't find the break. I broke my C2 and I was walking around for a week at home with something clicking up here and I didn't know I'd broken my neck and then I went to see my physio who's called John Skull and he said look you want to go and have a scan and they scanned it and found it straight away and um, I was in a frame up to my chin and around my head and down to my waist um, for about four months and um, it suited me prepared. And how long were you out of the saddle for? How long did it take you to get back on a horse? Well, I was, I was told I'd be able to ride again in a year and um, I was back in the saddle after six months probably. But um, they then I went to get my licence at Portman Square as it was then and uh, they refused uh, to let me have it back, and um, and that was a that was difficult to take at the time. And what was the reasoning for not giving you it back? Well, they thought if I had a, another bad fall that I might end up in a wheelchair or whatever. But um, there are other jockeys, Andrew Thorne and Mick Fitzgerald, that have done the same thing since, and, and they were allowed to come back. So it was I wasn't ready for it, and I was young enough that I wanted to ride for longer than that, and. Um, yeah, it was, it was difficult at the time. So you started training not long after that? I started a training company. I, I, I was trying to do anything but train, because I never wanted to be a trainer. So I started a trading company, and that went down the tube because I didn't know what I was doing. So I was... I what was, were you trying to trade? Uh, submarines, diamonds, anything, basically. <laughs> and I was being sent things on a fax, and I was sending them on but I forgot to take the address or whatever on the guy who was sending me the deals. So of course, I was cut out of most of them. And you have to stick to what you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to do that. So you couldn't sell submarines. You weren't very good at selling diamonds. No. But you could shift the odd horse or two. I've always been able to do that because I know a bit more about horses than I do about submarines, to be honest. And you made a startling comeback, and this is where I started the story, to ride in what many people would perceive to be the most dangerous race in the world, the Velka Pardubitska, in the Czech Republic, what was then Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, in uh, in 95, on a horse called It's a Snip that you also trained. Yeah. Now, there's been a history of British and Irish riders in this race, but not one that is full of, full of joy. But for you, it was rather different. Just talk us through this. It was something I'd seen. I'd, I'd been out with a fellow called Gavin Rag to see the race, and it just, it just got me going, and I thought... You know, this race could be won with the right horse, and um, I saw a horse at Doncaster Sales at Ted Walsh trained. Where are you here? Um, in in the white colours, fourth. About fourth. Yeah, and um, I just had it in my head about this race, and bought the horse from Ted Walsh for four thousand uh, pounds in August, and we didn't really have long enough to get him ready for the race the first year, but he finished second, and he ran very well. And then the following year, we, we, we got a run into him before the race. Richard Dunwoody rode him, and um, 
we went. I went out there a lot more confident than I was the first time, and um, and he duly won. Yeah. And did it matter to you that you were essentially out of practice? That you hadn't ridden in a in a, a race of any description for five or six years prior to this? It's very tough when you when you you only get race fit by riding in races, and I hadn't ridden a race for six years or whatever. And uh, as you can see here, I mean, I looked a mess, but I mean. Um, when you're not riding regularly, it's terribly difficult, especially in a four and a half mile chase. To, um, to uh, you know, just to be the fitness thing is is the most difficult thing. But you can't get fit to race ride. I mean, you 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 get fit by riding races to race ride. Yeah. And Charlie, what was it about you that made you want to do this? Because it's a, it's a strange thing to want to come back after six years out of the saddle and ride in a race like this, and put yourself under that much pressure. I just thought I had unfinished business, and if, if you stop of your own accord, then it, it's a lot easier. But I stopped when I didn't want to stop. And I know Richard Dunwoody was the same. He had an injury, and he he couldn't come to terms. Oh my word! For a long time. <laughs> uh, but you've you, you looked round so many times that the horse has pulled up underneath you. Yeah, he pricked his ears. He saw the crowd, and he he, he stopped dead basically. But he won with more in hand than it looked. The um, I probably wasn't helping him too much. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel, Dubai. Welcome back, you're watching Luck on Sunday. Charlie Mann is still with us and he has been joined, indeed he is flanked, by David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, a uh, regular here on Luck on Sunday, and Christian Williams, a rising star amongst the training ranks. I, I don't think I was wrong to say that, was I? No, no, we've had a good run since Christmas, so it's gone well at the moment. Things are going great. Uh, and you won the Midlands National last week with Potter's Corner, which is your, your I suppose, your most high-profile success to date. Yeah, yeah, he was the one big hope at the start of the year that um, hope he could win the Saturday race and sad times there up in Newcastle. Thought he'd nearly won the Ida, but mm. he obviously put it right then at Utoxeter. And you've got to be quite brave as a trainer. He's a horse who, who fell at, at Wincanton in the Somerset National when he was kind of coming there to challenge. Did the same in, did the, same in the Ida. And then you've got to be fairly bold to go and run him in another marathon chase, but it, it paid off beautifully. Yeah, yeah, I think I've been a bit hard on him now since Christmas, so that might be him for the year, but... Um, the entries are bet three six five on Tuesday, and it's only a small, small fee to enter originally, and then a bigger declaration fee. So we probably enter him in, in the bet three six five, and um, bet three six five come down did a few videos. So it'd be nice to try and support the race if we can. But the ground will need to come up soft for him to run there. But we've also got an option going to France maybe in May. It's a good calendar over there for him. So we we'll probably give him one more run maybe, with um, France probably being mm. being the, the biggest possibility. And you were listening to Charlie there talking about the, the difficulty of, of training now and, and, and trying to make a living and establish yourself and be successful. You're at a slightly different stage of your career. You're, you're just starting out. How, how much optimism do you have within you that you can sort of make it where you want to get to? I'd hope to just maybe give it two years and see, see how I'm going. But I think I moved home. I moved home from Diewald, which is a great supporter of mine, for four years originally when I started training. I moved home then... 12 months ago with no license and four horses so it's gone well since then we've um, haven't really looked around for other owners just had, uh, had a lot of confidence in four or five horses I had there thought I could do good work with them after Christmas if um, if they came healthy and I was confident that if they won one race each their confidence would, would carry them through to winning four or five races each so as they seem to have done well since Christmas but um, I also got to be mindful that those horses won't be able to do the same damage next year 
And it, when you say you moved home, this is where exactly? Uh, back to my father's place, Ogma by Sea, Bridgen. So obviously lucky with the family support. I couldn't have done it without without the family support. But um, now it seems to be going okay at the moment, going well, and we're confident now going forward. And uh, Christian, are you the sort of person that who would rather just train four or five or ten or a dozen or? Are you, are you the sort of person who wants 150 horses in Jupiter? I won't go as far as saying I want 150 horses, but um, you, I don't think anyone could go out there and say they want to train four or five horses. I was ambitious in everything I've done when I started riding. I wanted to be the best, I wanted to be champion jockey, and then retired early because I wasn't doing as well as I wanted to do. So I haven't gone into training to train 10 winners a year. I hope to train a lot more than that, and, and you obviously need, need a good number of horses to, be, to train plenty of winners, to be competitive in in the midweek races and the weekend races, so yeah, it'd be unambitious if I came on here saying I wanted to train 15 or 20 horses. It'd be hopefully we'd grow. You want to be part of them, I mean, and you were part of some tremendously successful setups as well when you were riding. And Paul Nichols, most most obviously, um, you say rather modestly that things weren't going right for you. You had wretched fortune with injury. To be fair, I mean, I I don't know anyone who was as unlucky as you were. No, every jock in the waiting room could come and sit in this chair and they've all been injured, so I wouldn't take that as there's no excuses with the injuries. But, uh, I wanted to do better than I was doing and just retired. Do you remember the day Do you remember the day at Warwick when you were due yeah. to ride Big Bucks? I think I missed a treble. I, I, there was Channel 4 there at the time and um, I think I'd ridden a treble that day and Big Bucks just got beat. I think I had a one on him. Um, <laughs> Horse had run out of me would have won, and one of Alex Hales is um, Andrew Cohen on one. Yeah, I think it was three or four winners. But it was just just bad luck, or just horse just clipped the wing, and and there's just a jockey mentality, just any sports mentality. I realised that I was in a bit of trouble, so I rushed into the waiting room as quick as I could and tried to get a few painkillers down me as quick as I could. And just, got changed. Yeah, came out. Got, uh, got changed, but. Um, just couldn't put my foot in the eye and I fractured my leg in four or five places. But being the being the nice chap that you were, you kindly agreed to do an interview with me who was reporting there for Channel 4 <laughs> at the time. And I remember you came out and your leg was starting to swell up in your boot and I was interviewing you about riding big bucks and you, you started to sweat, go white and sweat. And there you were with a broken leg in five places about to go out and ride this thing and it was only when you, you tried to get legged up that you said, I can't do this. Yeah, yeah, that was... A, that was I think it was a kingmaker, two mile it was, yeah. chase, and yeah. big, big bucks ended up being a three mile. Yeah. So. But no, yeah, the, my mother watched the interview and she, I spoke to her on the way home then and she obviously knew something was wrong just from explaining what you just did there. Mm. She thought you were just being offhand with me. <laughs> uh, and of course, you uh, did you win the race with Kruger over or was she second? That was yours, wasn't it, or not? No, <clears throat> I don't think so. This um, man went mad. Or was it Charlie Edgerton? I'm getting the wrong Charlie. No, we had a run in the race of delayed 20 minutes. It was yours, wasn't it? Yeah. In the Kingmaker. Yeah, yeah. Warwick. I'm trying to think that was. Um, we had a horse called Govain at one of the Kingmaker, actually. Govain. There you are. We, we go, yeah. We're going back through the years. David Yates is with us. How are you, Yates? Yes, very well, my Lise. Thank you. Good. Um, I feel that Charlie and I have come dressed as each other, um, <laughs> albeit uh, different sizes. <laughs> um, I love the way that you people talk about injuries. If I, if I fractured my leg, I would know whether it was four or five places mm. and yet you say yeah four, four or five, or five can't remember which i'd know so you put your um uh, pink t 
tank top and mustard cords on in homage to Ch uh, Charlie Mann, and, and there he is dressed sober as a judge. Yes, I'm quite surprised by uh, Charlie's get-up this morning. It seems quite uh, uh, sober and... Um, what's the word? Uh, urban, actually. Mm. Uh, we spoke at the races yesterday, and I said, what are you going to wear? First time I've ever compared. Uh, we, we've done that. Uh, I've done that with anybody. He said, "I'll wear my red trousers." I said, "Right, I'm okay with my Colonel mustards." But uh, yeah, lovely navy blue suit for Charlie today. And speaking of uh, being a good judge, you are actually playing a judge at the moment. In, uh, in well, I'm rehearsing a, for one. Yeah, in uh, the production of Trial by Jury. <laughs> Indeed, I am. Yeah, yeah. How's um, it going? Uh, early days. Early days. First rehearsal was on Wednesday. Um, could have gone better, but with amateur opera people, you can get. <laughs> You can get really people who sting you at the first rehearsal and say, yes, uh, I think there might be a little room for improvement there. You know, and you think, oh, God, I sang terribly. But uh, the musical director was very kind and, and understanding of my musical shortcomings, which I hope to iron out over the next uh, few weeks. Would you call Gilbert and Sullivan opera or operetta? Well, it, light opera. Yeah, I suppose you'd call it light opera, yeah. I mean, the company... Uh, this is a racing programme, everybody, by well, the way. We, it's, it's um, a broad, this the, is a broad church. It is a broad church. Uh, it's, it's with a company called Brent Opera, obviously, mm. in North London, mm. who normally do, quote-unquote, more traditional opera, Mozart, Verdi, Puccini. Uh, this is a double bill with trial by jury and uh, Cavalleria Rusticana. Good. So uh, where can we get tickets? Website. Brent Opera. Yeah, I'm sure, sure there might be a couple left. <laughs> One for me, one for Charlie, one for Christian. All welcome. Jobs are good. Now, you've been listening to Charlie talking about uh, the British Horse Racing Authority. Yeah. Um, what was your take on his comments? Um, I, I agree with them in large part. I, I think that one of, the, one of the problems which we'll come on to uh, during the course of the programme, the, the British Horse Racing Authority has a very bad image problem. And one thing that you mentioned, Charlie, about the, the Gary Moore horses, whereby... The, the BHA, to people outside of it, seems to want to take the credit for the good things and push others under the bus when things go wrong. Um, almost like in every classroom when we were kids, there's a little snitch and a, a, a stool pigeon who tells the teacher that he saw you having a fag behind the bike sheds or something like that. And there is an element of that in the BHA. Like, for example, I'm... I'm I, I was caught looking at my mobile phone. Barry Orr of uh, Betfair very kindly put a, uh, a video on uh, last time I was on, which, which got loads of adverse comments. So I'm using a traditional pen and paper today. I just wish to quote from the BHA statement immediately after the National Hunt chase, which said they were extremely disappointed by the conduct of a small number of riders. Amateur participation in its current form at future f festivals will be under material threat. Now... Day in, day out, when you ring the BHA for a statement, as most regulators are, they're very cautious and conservative, and they say, well, we don't comment on individual cases, and they'll give you a, a couple of lines that you, you go away with, which aren't particularly useful, but you put them in the piece because you need to use mm. a quote. And this came out very soon afterwards, and you think, well, who's this statement for? Is it to show racing's opponents that, yes, we're disappointed with them too. Why, why not put out your usual conservative, non-committal statement uh, with regard to what's happened and then deal with it later on? I, I feel that um, 
I, I know, for example, that when the raft of recommendations for Cheltenham were made, there was a lot of disquiet at Cheltenham Racecourse because they thought, well, hang on, we came up with a large number of these mm. and you're holding your press conference to say this is what we're doing. And, and I think that that is an image problem that the BHA have to address. That they're very good at taking the credit. Lots of racing practitioners feel that they act with hubris, that they use routinely use a sledgehammer to crack a nut. When, when the practitioners are at fault, they're dealt with it in a, a, a way that often lacks humility. When it's the BHA that are at fault, well, it wasn't really our fault. Look, the, the, um, the, uh, the photo finish, was it, is it one for Rosie? The, the, um, we talked about Sandown at the EBA yeah. final, yeah. The, the, the two winning posts, for example, right? The BHA statements after that, they throw essentially, the race tech people under the bus. They don't recognise it's, it, it is the final responsibility of the, the race day senior steward to rubber stamp that result. In terms of, if we, like, I, I'll use a, uh, a comparison, say, with a pub, right? Mm. If you've got a bar person who serves an underage, uh, someone with an underage, uh, someone underage with an alcoholic drink, it's not them that's done. It's the landlord. It's your name above the door, mate. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to lose your licence. And, and in that instance, again, ultimately, that responsibility lay with a BHA person. And yet, in the hmm. statement, it's like, oh yeah, race tech gov, not me. Lots of things have built up over the last few weeks where I, I spoke to Charlie about it, I spoke to Nick Rust about it when he sat in this seat last week, where there's just that little lack of trust, mutual trust and mutual respect between the practitioners and the authority. And isn't it beholden on both parties to just find a little bit of, of course. a ground yeah. in the middle. And of course it is. Don't we need to take the heat? I'm, it's ironic that I should say this because I feel like I'm fanning the flames on this programme, but do we not need to just take a bit of the heat out of the situation? At least one senior jockey came up to me yesterday and said, everyone needs to calm yeah, down. Yeah, of course. The trainers included. Of course. Of course that needs to happen, and that's a point that's been made uh, over the last few days said he, adopting a calmer tone of voice. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think that... I, I'm not sure that the letter, for example, in the Racing Post this week, I've maybe come to Charlie on this, was terribly helpful to your cause. I, mean, I think you're right, yeah. Even if it made some valid points within <clears> it. <throat> this is one by Henry S. Knight, Mick Shannon, Charlie Edgerton, was it? Correct. Yeah, um, I think one or two of the points are right, but, I mean, one of the, one of the points for me was about Nottingham race scores, which I don't totally agree with that one. Mayor's races, too many of those. Uh, again, I don't agree with that one because Nicky bought a horse for 400000 the other day, a mayor, and it has brought mayor's values up and, and um, you know, people are buying more mayors because of these races. But um, they have a point about it. I think everything else was fairly in order. And, it, and the, the criticism of this uh, letter, Dave, has been not for its content so much as its tone. Yeah, I, I, absolutely right. So you have to separate out the two. I think that's a very unfortunate thing. You know, the, the wording of, uh, is it, it, it employing people from the Antipodes? Is that Australia and New Zealand? Is that the Antipodes or is it just yes, Australia? I think it's, I think it's so. that. Anyway, um, but that gave smart Alex, particularly on social media, the opportunity to take pot shots at, you know, because you can almost hear Hen saying people from the Antipodes going, I'm, I'm not going to do your voice, Hen, if you're watching. It could have been um, Mick Shannon who said people from the Antipodes. Yeah, sure it could. <laughs> or or um, Charlie Edgerton. I don't like the word the angry br brigade because I think that horse racing <clears throat> has to uh, recognise that there are 
people who are mm. uneasy and want uh, racing's welfare record to be improved. Also, there are people who will who will oppose horse racing no matter what. Um, for for example, uh, the, the the Antipodes quote. It, it matters not where somebody is born or raised, does it? It, it matters what their are you, are qualification. You, are you now putting yourself in the tone of this letter? So well, it, because I said it matters it, not. It matters All right, not it doesn't matter. <laughs> All right, yeah. you can. <laughs> where was I? Um, if, for example, I apply for a job and they say, "I'm sorry, we don't take on sons of Bedford," I'd go to a, a lawyer straight away and say, "Well, these people say I can't have a job because I was born and raised in Bedford." Mm. Um, so I think that was very unfortunate, uh, and as a, I, I think the tone of it gave, as I say, it it it, it rather mm. uh, gave people the opportunity to take pot shots at the at the uh, at the way it was presented rather than the, the core content. content. Yeah. And and actually, but but there is, and this is something that this is something that the BHA does have to look at. There is, a, I've worked in racing journalism since 1990 so 29 years nearly and I can't remember even in the days of the old jockey club a, a, a bigger divide between the practitioners and the ruling body and I think that is that in this sense yes everybody needs to calm down and realize that we've got more common ground than we might actually realize but I think it's largely incumbent on the ruling body to reach out to the practitioners a bit like a, a parent would to a child. I think it's that it's, it's incumbent on the BHA to say, well, look, we, we are on the we are on the same side. I, I feel that at the moment, most many practitioners in horse racing, and there's another letter going around, by the way. I'm sure Charlie's seen it. Is there? For, from uh, that's what, written, another open letter from a trainer. Well, it's it's you know, are we signatories to the idea that we're not happy with the way that the BHA or is running the sport? Which I, I've seen it, type. and I'm sure you know, loads, of, loads of other people have. But it's either, it's either been sent to trainers or it's on its way to them. Now, in this sense, the, the BHA has to convince racing practitioners that it is trying to run the sport and it is, it is mm. on their side rather than merely playing to a gallery of a few people on Twitter who can shout louder than everybody else. Uh, one, can I just ask on, one question? And that is, when you went for your job interview and said you were from Bedford, if the last four people had all come from Bedford and failed in that job, would you still be going to see a solicitor? Charlie, it's take me a while to work that one out. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, can I just say... I, I, merely that it, it's... I think, if, I, I think I have to pick Charlie up on that, because on. there's no suggestion that anyone uh, at the BHA who was previously employed, who was from Australia or anywhere else, has failed in their job. I mean, I, I wouldn't say Greg Nichols failed in his job. I wouldn't say Paul Bitter failed in his job. I wouldn't necessarily say Jamie Steer failed in his job. So I... I I, well, I disagree with you, I'm afraid, on those ones. But um, you have to give me specific examples of why that's the case if you disagree with me. Paul you can't Bissar, just say I disagree with you. Paul Bissar came in, sort of all guns blazing, said he's going to change everything. What did he do? Uh, Jamie Steer. I, I, I mean, I don't think they did the job they were employed to do. Simple as that. And I don't understand why we keep going back there. I've had 30 seconds to think about it, Charlie, and the answer is yes, I would still... Because I would say what's the, the previous candidates, whether they succeeded or failed, it, they're, 
their right, yeah. geographical background is of no relevance. Can I bring this round to a practical application and bring Christian in here? Because Christian, you're at the coalface, you are training horses, you're a small trainer, you've not got a huge band of staff, um, you're doing incredibly well with the resources that you've got. Is all this talk actually practically applicable to you? Do you see the manifestation of this day in, day out, or are you just getting on with the job? Uh, sad for us young trainers, because we obviously look for guidance of, of older trainers who are just taking advice, and it's, it's just a shame that um, like when Potter's Corner fell once or twice, the first person to run was Henriette, and I took the horse out to school. She rings me all the time, helps me with that individual horse, and... Um, when I was applying for a license, the BHA couldn't be more helpful. Get me the license, they rushed the license, license through, came down out of working hours just to tell me what I needed to do at the yard, just to get a temporary license in place. So, but it's just a shame that, um, that there seems to be a divide, and it's just a shame everyone's not working together. Because, like I said, a young trainer like myself, I don't like to get involved, and there'd be other trainers being around longer than me and more educated than me that. Uh, would know more about what's going on, so it's just a shame that Emma's not working in the same direction. And as you said, you've been given great help by the VHA. Ah, oh, brilliant. Yeah. But great help by, by Henrietta Henry well, as well, who's been a regular guest on this programme, yeah. and a, a much-loved figure in the, in the industry. Yeah, yeah, she's great advice, and um, took the horse up there to school, and she's brilliant, and I'd ring her straight away if I need any help. She'd be the first person i call. And I think that's the point, Dave, that there's an awful lot of talk, but... So we sort of need to understand the reality of what people are doing day in, yeah, day out. Absolutely. And, and before we move on, uh, this is the first LOS I've done, I think, since the, the Henry Oliver uh, ins- incident. Is it? We haven't had you on for a while. And um, the issue with that, that, subsequently, there was obviously that very unfortunate statement about horses competing of their own free will. Now, which the BHA have apologised for. Something. Yes, they apologised for it, but they apologised for it because everyone laughed at them and suggested that, you know, I well, wrote a piece saying that the drug squad should be dispatched to High Hoban because obviously someone's been smoking too much wacky-backy, as people used to call it in my day. Not that I ever smoked it. And um, the, the BHA apologised subsequently. Now, was this merely uh, a, 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 an out-of-character, almost slip of the tongue mm. that had been... Uh, put in print, or was the, did the mask slip? Are there people at the BHA who who have this uh, th- this idea that is completely at odds with the rest of us that horses can they don't complete uh, nothing nothing in a thoroughbred's life is of its own free will from its conception to the day that its life ends. Yeah, well, I I hear what you're saying, but I think they've apologised for that. And I think we have to take that apology okay. at face value. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with that. And it is, it, it, that is a, a reheating a pretty old pie as well, I think, that particular issue. But First I, pie I've eaten since I was on here last time. I can't <laughs> help that, can I? Uh, let's talk about yesterday's action. And whilst we bade farewell to one star of the weighing room, we ushered in a new star, I think, meaningfully. We saw his talents exhibited in fantastic fashion at the Cheltenham Festival on early doors in the Martin Pike. Yesterday he rode a double. His name's John Joe O'Neill Jr., of course, and he won the Mayor's Final on Annie Mack. He is a, he is a serious talent, this guy, Christian, isn't he? And five pounds is not going to last very long, but for the time being, it's daylight robbery. Yeah, he looks an exceptional talent, and... He just got slowed down with one or two injuries, I think, at the start. It's probably helped him. Probably just given him an extra few months to strengthen up, and he's obviously under good guidance with his father, and they, haven't, they didn't rush him in the beginning, but 
he's going to be forced in now to be, to be taking more rides and, and hopefully he's, he'll have luck with injuries and his talent will progress. Two winners for John Joe Neal Jr. yesterday. One of them was on Chic Name, the other one was on this uh, mare, Annie Mack. And here she is in the Coral Champions Club colours. Great victory for them, of course. Uh, the white and blue silks. And she sighs through the pack and wins under top weight. It was an impressive performance, Charlie. It was, yeah. I mean, it's a very competitive race, this. Um, John Joe's horse is running well now. And uh, he's a good kid. <clears throat> but he's been taught by the right person, obviously, former champion jockey, uh, John Joe. And um, he's going the right way. Um, it was interesting, I was reading an article about him and he's <clears throat> not a light lad and he's going to keep his weight at a certain level but he's not going to do 10 stone or 9 stone, 9 whatever it is but, uh, and I think that's a good thing to do if, if you're not starving yourself the whole time then um, it's going to be more enjoyable part than else. And Christian, when you were at this stage of, of, of your career and you were being talked of as the, of the, next, as the next big thing how, how easy was it for you to keep yourself... Uh, mentally in the in the right place and keep yourself on the right track and and pushing forward. That was great, yeah. When when he brought up around horses, all you think about is riding them, really. So you don't really take much notice now. You just want to get on the horse and, and you hope to ride every single day. And and these young talents probably don't get talked of enough. Got John Joe, James Bowen, young boy who works in my yard, um, Jack too. There's so many young good boys about, and it just seems racing at the moment seems to be talking about all the negative things. Tell, tell me a little bit about the. You were saying the the guy who works in your yard. Yeah, he's only young. He's um, Jack. He's sixteen year old. He's an exceptional talent. But Did you say Jack Tudor. Jack Jack Tudor. Tudor. Yeah, but he can He's qualified to ride against professionals now. But there's not a course. You can't go on a course until May. So that's another thing that should probably be put right. You know, he's he'd be he'd be better off gaining experience now riding against professionals. But he can't do that for another another three or four months because I don't think there's a course, it's not a course in Newmarket or mm-hmm. or Doncaster until until the end of May. So Because he's the next big thing, you think he's the next sort of James Byrne, yeah, next cattle to rank? Yeah, I'd hope so. I think he got six or seven rides for me and three winners. And what is it about Wales that produces all these exciting young jockeys? And it's not just the Bowen family, is uh, it? And I was reading the weekend and then they have the tipsters from um, I think the West Country, Newmarket, Lambourne and the North and there should obviously be Race is massive in Wales now. There should be a Welsh section as well. A new job created in racing journalism. That's <laughs> the job. first for about 30 years. <laughs> it is, yeah. Well, Welsh correspondent for uh, for the Racing Post. All all that, all applications gratefully received. Perhaps we should have one on this programme as well. Welsh update every week. Um, the man who was responsible in part for the victory yesterday of Annie Mack, indeed he puts her through her paces most mornings, on the gallops is uh, is Chris Hughes who joins us on the line now. Chris, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How you doing? You all right. Uh, very well, thank you. I I was lucky enough to speak to you yesterday, yeah. and I don't think I've ever seen you quite so overcome by the result of a horse race. Um, as someone who who's quite closely involved with this mare, just just explain what that meant to you. Oh, mate, it's brilliant. Um, when she well, when she went sort of five six lengths clear and just extended yesterday, I kind of went a bit speechless and. I feel like, you know, we expect her to run a big race, but with this man, we still don't really know, you know, how good she is. But she is, she's got so much ability. She is very good. But yesterday, to go and do what she did and do it in the style that she did, it was unbelievable. But, yeah, I have a close connection with her, obviously. You know, I love, love the O'Neills, you know, close family friends of ours. And I go out there and ride out and ride out Annie Mack. And I rode her the second day she was up at the yard and when we got her from the, from the sail in Ireland. And 
she's just brilliant. She's got the most beautiful mannerisms. She's just a lovely, lovely horse, and she's so gentle and so soft. But she's just so honest. She's a she's a racehorse who absolutely loves what she does. She loves being out on the track and to see her win and to, to just to, just to prove to people, you know, how good she is. Because because we know we know she's good, but you know, obviously, you know, it's a bit of an open race yesterday, and she kind of. She just absolutely destroyed him, didn't she? And, and she deserved it. And she's made us all proud. So it was a great day. And your association with John Joe goes back long, long before everybody knew you for all your television exploits. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we live... So our family farm is, is kind of situated on the end of, you know, at the bottom of his gallops. It's just across the field. And, you know, our farm's in that area. So we live, you know, we live a stone's throw away. And, you know, like I just said, we've been family friends for years. And I've been going up to John Joe's, not riding out necessarily, but I've been going up there since sort of 14 or 15. And that's when, you know, I remember Jackie, uh, John Joe's wife, invited me up just to just to walk around the yard. And I loved Blackjack Ketchum when I was younger. So, I, you know, I got to meet Blackjack and meet AP. And that was on my 15th birthday. And they're just very hospitable, absolutely lovely family. And, you know, it's great. And it's great to see, obviously, you know, John Joe Jr. doing what he's doing because, you know, it, it, it's, a family, it's a hard-working family. And, and you know, they they will be successful. John Joe Jr. will be very successful because, you know, it's just the naturism of, of, of you know, what the family's all about. You know, they work hard, they're very professional, and, yeah, it's great to see him, him having riding winners as well. I mean, obviously, your, your stint on Love Island and, and what's happened since has, has given you this, this huge profile, and, uh, and, and racing, understandably, is, is making plenty of that. But do you, think, do you think this would have been a career for you? Do you think a career in this sport would have been what you'd have been doing had you not, had you not done that? Ooh. Well, growing up, well, growing up when I was, well, I was going to the Charlotte Festivals. It's like a sort of eleven, twelve-year-old. I was having the days off school, when, and I go with my dad, or I go with Sam Twister Davis and his family. And I used to go to the races with Nigel, bit Nigel Twister Davis, when with when me and Sam were younger. So I grew up with you know a lot of jockeys which have come through who are professionals now in my school days. I, I always wanted to be a jockey, and then I realised you know I went and started playing football more so when I was sort of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. And I kind of left the horses behind me at, at that age. And but growing up, it was something that you know I absolutely loved doing. I did all my sort of my pony club. I did, you know, I rode rode up point to point horses. My horses were kept at a point to point yard in Norton, where Earth Summit was looked after in its retirement. And I used to ride Earth Summit out every now and then when I was younger. And it just gave me a great buzz. You know, it's, it's such a the Cotswolds where I, where I live is such a lovely part of the world. It's such a racing community, and you're either you're either fully involved in it or you're not at all. I mean, it's it's kind of like one way or the other. And, it's just great that you know I am, uh, you know I have been part of it. I love the game; it's such an amazing sport, and we're, we're so blessed to you know have it so close to us, and with so many you know associated trainers around this area. And, and given the slightly sort of crazy world, I guess that you've inhabited more recently, does it does it help kind of keep things real for you a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is something I've known all my life. So, you know, I started riding when I was about seven years old, and you know, for, for me to kind of revisit and, and do things, you know, for me, which is like completely natural. It's a blessing in disguise because you know they're, they're the things which you know I, I must, I've always been grounded. I never will not be, but you know you keep your feet on your ground. It's just something. It's, it's a great passion of mine. So for me to you know do that and, and continue doing that is great fun. And obviously to have you know an interest with, with Annie Mack and to have such a close connection with her and, and cheer her on every week is, is fantastic as well. So no, I'm absolutely loving it. It's great fun. And you enjoyed the TV work at Cheltenham as well? Yeah, no, TV yeah, it went really well. The, um, you know how old-fashioned some sort of you know people could be rated how Twitter is. I think the response we got after I did the the social table went really well, and um, just obviously you have to kind of win a few people over. Stop not not everybody you know viewers especially because it's a larger demographic, especially at the travel mm. festival. Not many people really know kind of you know you're racing you know 
uh, sort of prowess, I guess, really, in terms of you know what you've been involved in and what you know about it. So, you know, you have to win a few people over, but the response was unbelievable. Absolutely loved it. Great day, and I'll, and I'll be there for Aintree as well with ITV. So. Yeah, it's been no, it's been, it's been amazing, mate, and I'm just just enjoying every every minute of it. It's all right. You've only got ten million of them to win over on Grand National well, Day. You'll be you'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, I've, I've got <laughs> two days before to go at it, so fingers crossed Thursday and Friday I can win them over. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. It's very difficult to know how to introduce my next guest. His life and career in racing has been an extraordinary one. He's a man who forwent uh, a nascent career in the priesthood and turned his hand to punting extremely successfully as well. Uh, he has landed some of the most monumental and momentous coups the sport has seen over a period that has spanned nearly five decades. He's also trained successful winners. He's handled future Gold Cup winners. He has been a friend to the famous. He has been uh, feared and fearless. He has courted controversy. He is loved by many and he is considered a figure of significant intrigue by many more. I'm delighted to say that making a rare television appearance... My guest this morning is Barney Curley. Barney, good morning. Good morning to you, Nick. And it's lovely to see you here. Uh, for those people who haven't seen much of you in the last two or three years, just... Maybe more. Maybe more. Yes. Uh, tell me, what is the day-to-day -day life of Barney Curley like right now in 2019? Well, it's... Um, I mostly give my time to the charity we're running. Uh takes up most of my time so that's what I'm doing mostly and this is DAFA direct aid for Africa is which I want to talk about a little bit later okay. on in a, right. in a bit more depth but I, you were saying to me have you have you done your research I said I could I could read books and books and books and books for about two weeks and I don't think I could ever have done enough research and half an hour is not going to do us justice but what I really wanted to do was to go right back to the beginning and ask you where essentially this all started. What was it inside you that informed the rest of your life and career in horses and gambling, do you think? Well, I think I was sent to boarding school at 11 years of age. Then, when I was 16, my father went skint. So, we landed in England, both of us. And I think that was a big making of me. It was tough. Uh, it was a, f a factory called Petrochemicals in Ormston, Manchester. Mm -hmm. And uh, we lived there for 12 months. Worked two shifts every day, 7 to 2. Sorry, 7 to 10. Didn't have much time. The only time we tried always to take off the second Saturday when Manchester United were at home. That was our sort of our, our holiday for the fortnight. And... Uh, I think it was a good grounding. I started off um, sweeping the floor and uh, I made a bit of progress. I was put on a computer and uh, we, um, I think it was tough. We just had a small room which would be maybe half the size of the studio and uh, we went to work every day, we got the money and sent it home and eventually after 12 months the debt was cleared and b back we came to home. Then, I suppose after that, uh, I decided I would study for the priesthood. 
So I was there for 18 months, two years maybe. So I used to always be on the A team at football. So uh, eventually I ended up on the C team. And the trainer used to say to me, you know, Curly, you're not trying. And I'd say, I'm doing my very best. But it ended up, I collapsed on the football field. And, uh, and what age were you at this point, Barney? I was about 19, 20. 19, 20. So I had TB. Now, it was a killer at the time. Mm. You know, it was... Uh, so I landed up in a sort of a sanatorium on the shores of Loch Erne in Northern Ireland. And, uh, you know, the, the cure was open all the windows and you had these tablets every day and a jag in your backside every day, right? So, you know, uh, it's okay if you get five on each side, it's not too bad. But if you ended up with 30 or 40 injections on each side, it's a killer. You know, so we had to go through all this, but lucky enough, three of us survived. You know, three of us survived, everybody else died. And it was, you know, it was, it makes you think about life. You know, it was a big, it was a big war, but only three of us got out. So after that, uh, I uh, went home. maybe for 12 months and started back again but I could not get into the the studying you know the philosophy and the theology and all it just couldn't so I left and I was sitting at home and this chap who was a local came to me and said I'm establishing an insurance company in London and uh, he said I'd like you to be a director so I said right fine I'll go so we used to leave... So apropos of nothing, you got this offer? Offer, yeah. Well, he was a friend of the family, right? And you were a 20-year-old guy yeah. who'd been in yes, studying to be a priest. that's right. I'm a, now a director of an insurance so he's obviously spotted something. Well... He obviously he, didn't think you'd come down in the he last probably, shower. He probably wanted a yes man to put through all the, the motions on the board. But he's anyhow, gone for the wrong guy, hasn't he? Yeah, well, you did, yeah. But anyhow, uh, we were f- the first Irish high flyers in our time you know Uh we used to leave Belfast at 7 o'clock every Monday morning and fly back again to Belfast at 8 or 9 o'clock on a Friday evening to Heathrow being collected by the chauffeur at Heathrow and brought to the offices in Finchley and brought back again and things were great the money kept rolling in you know thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds and there was no payouts because there was no claims. Mm. So this money was building up all the time. So eventually, one Friday evening, we're going home, and uh, this, the evening news, on the top of the evening news was Savondra arrested. So I, I didn't even know who Savondra was, but the chap who was ringing this insurance company told the chauffeur, stop, I want the newspaper. So anyhow, we get back and on a Friday night, on Saturday morning, my solicitor rings me at home and said, Barney, you're to resign from that insurance company. And of course I asked why, and he, you know, he threatened me, if you don't resign, I'm going to tell your father. So I wrote a note and resigned. On Monday morning, the board of trade landed in Finchley and gave the man in charge, you have an option, either we're going to arrest you or closed down this insurance company. 
So he took the easy option and closed it down. It's a big case in English law, Savondra. Mm. I think it was called the Vehicle and General Company. But it was really, it was a bit of a scam, really, because all the money kept pouring in. We had no reinsurance. Mm. Money kept pouring in. This fellow who was running the company said, I'm going to buy this here and I'm going to buy that there. You know, and it was, you know, they're talking about uh, bootmakers, uh, sort of as someone to print money. This was, this was, this was a gold mine. It's too good to be true. Too good to be true. But he got eight to ten years of under, and uh, the fellow who was running the company that I was in, mm. he, he cleared off. And for, fortuitously for you, you had somebody looking out for you, so you'd, That's right. you'd done a so, run up before yeah, well, it came I'd have been, I'd have been trouble. Well, probably, but he did close down the company, and that was it. So then that was it, and then I was. Uh, I was at home and this guy came in to me and said, I want you to run or manage our pop group. There were show bands at the time, right? And I said, oh, I don't want to. Oh, he says, you have to do it. You know a lot of people. You were in school in the South and all sorts. So off we start. And uh, what, So they, they were... Uh, was it? The seven-piece band. Right. Like, you know, you had two <clears throat> guitars, drummers, uh, saxophone players, trumpets, all sorts. Very, very good. They were very good, you know. All, it was a big thing in Ireland at the time. And were you were you musical? Did you know much? No, about music? I wasn't musical at all. I wasn't musical at all, but I knew people who get them into the, the venues, yeah. you know. So we struggled along for oh, I suppose six months or something. So then we decided to make a record, and we're struggling around. We're getting abused. Your amplifiers are bad. You this or that and the other thing. Getting about twenty pound a night, you know, more there traveling everywhere so we we decided we'd make a record so I went up to Belfast studios and we made this record and after the record uh, Mr. Solomon who was an old Jewish man in Belfast came to me and he said Sonny I think we have a hit right he says you know how to handle that so, you know, at that time you had to write, confirm I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, whatever you call it, yeah. Ealing and on the such and such, and you had to write. So I had about two weeks confirmed for the band. So I left the rest blank. So the, 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 the record came out in about four or five weeks' time, and it went straight into the English Top 20. It was a record called Five Little Fingers. Radio Caroline were broadcasting out on the North Sea at the time. You were, that was before your time, yeah. it's a problem. Well, they were out on the North Sea. So I had all three dates. Now, the £20 a night went to one twenty, which was an absolute fortune at the time with the new dates. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's how... And, of course, I was racing. So... See what strikes me from from listening to to what you've told me already is that it could you could have ended up doing anything, and you'd have found a way to somehow make it work for you. Were you just do you think you were just born resourceful, or do you think that period when you were sixteen and working with your dad in Manchester in the factory made you like that? I have to say I never was afraid of anything. You know, if somebody challenged me, you know, I'd say. You know, I can do it. There's me, always a me, way. Give me some there's, more. Yeah, there's always a way. Yeah. So after we, we, I was, I was betting at the horses, 
And I decided... Was well, that something... Were you always that on horses yes, from the always, minute you could remember? Yeah. Well, no, not really, but, you know, in my teens and mm. all, I was always betting and going to the odd race meeting and making a few pounds, you know. So I decided I would give up the bands. And do betting. And do betting. So I started off in betting and, of course, I bought a few horses and so on and so forth. W w were you a good punter even in your late teens or did you just have the confidence of youth? I think I had fairly good confidence that I, that I could make it pay. So I just walked away from everything. I left the bands. I had a, I had a newspaper, a free newspaper, one of the first of its time. I had one of them. I said, forget about it, I'm, I'm going. So I went, bought a few horses, and uh, the problem with the horses were that I owned, any time I went to the races, there were six, if they were okay, fancied, there were six or seven to four. You know? Mm. And I said to myself, well, you know, this isn't right. You know, you have to get the value. So I decided, right, I'm going to do this myself. So I made a plan. I, you know, I had a number of horses there anyhow, and I had a plan, and that's how I started off uh, with my own horses, with nobody else involved. So there was no leads coming. It, it was me, myself. So there was no, no one knew anything about no horses knew, apart from you, no. and presumably the people that were riding them in the morning, but you had to keep that, them... Well, what I did was, uh, I used to say to them, what happens in this yard stays in this yard. Anybody who says anything, sacked right away. No excuses, sacked. I remember I had three Indians working for me. And I, uh, this is when I arrived at Newmarket, and I said, look, if I see you in a betting shop, sacked right away. Your job here is to send home the money to your families. So he used to do me rounds every day about quarter past two in Newmarket, you know, to see what I see any of these in the betting shops. And funny, I never did. They took it on board. Because you always always ran a tight ship. The one thing I found fascinating about reading about some of the coups that you've executed very successfully yeah. over the years is the detail and the detailed instructions that you would give that's right. to all the agents who were round and yes, about in the shops right. placing, that's placing right. bets that's for right. you. That's right. How much is it that that you enjoyed relative to the actual financial reward that it gave you. Do, we, do you enjoy the chase more than the kill, Barney, do you think? Yes, I think I do. I think I do. I used to always say, you have to have a plan. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you must have patience, and you must get the value. Value was very important, you know? Uh, and, of course, no one knew anything. Because, you know, when I was working the horses, you know, nobody was sure what, what, what was happening. You know what I mean? I always was a bit fuzzy about things. I suppose, you know what I mean, Andrew Stringer was with me for, I don't know, he must have been with me for 15 or 20 years. It must have broke his heart. Especially when the charity started to go well, because, you know, he'd be saying, well, we'll work so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so tomorrow. And I'd say, no, Andrew, I'm going to. I'm going away. You have to put them on the walker. You know, and it, it, 
it used to be very, I often think about it, how frustrating it was for him, you know. And I never considered myself as a trainer. I always considered myself as an owner. And a player. As a, and supervisor. Mm. And supervisor. You know, I never, uh, I wanted a permit because I wanted to have my own horses. And uh, the jockey club wouldn't give me a permit. Why not? Because they said I had too many horses. But, you know, uh, you know, I didn't want I didn't want owners because you see, owners wouldn't suit my plans. Owners were leads. You know, you can't very well be telling people barefaced lies. You know what I mean? And you know, owners are inclined if you have a runner in the three o'clock, they're inclined to ring you up at half twelve. How's my horse, Barney? You know what I mean? Will you be working them soon and all the rest? And then you get, how will that horse of yours run on the 2.30? And that would always give it away, you know what I mean? So that's why I didn't want anybody. The Yellow Samku was 1975. Five, that's right. And your other two most famous coups were 2010 and 2014, so relatively yeah. recently. I'm presuming that between the years of 75 and 2010, you were routinely... Uh, executing fairly significant gambles that probably none of us ever knew and will never know about. You couldn't say it through a word. You know, the press picks up, will say, Yellow Sam, and they pick up 2010 and two, but they never picked up the other ones. I remember having the right touch one day at market racing. I think it was a horse called Health and Happiness. Health and Happiness. 14 to 1 or something, you know what I mean? I had a right a right tickle. I think Henry Oliver, the late Henry Oliver, went for a tickle in the same race. But I planned it. You know, you'd be, people would be watching you. So what I did was, I got a plane, and I landed over at Thurlis Racecourse. Uh, I think they were having a do there for something. And I made sure that I was well seen at Thurlis Racecourse. And of course the horse kept... Uh, uh, then things, gambles, there weren't gambles at all. I remember having a horse, a uh, big gamble on the television horse, returned evens. Aidan O'Brien had him, Andre Fobb had him, and he, he arrived with me. I'm the third man to have him, you know. Terrible horse, his feet were all wrong. So this gamble, anyway... A massive gamble supposed to be even money. Mm. I never had a penny on him. Tom Queeley, he's torn us into the state of Kenton. Tom Queeley picks up the shillelagh because he's going, you know what I mean? His feet is going, he's going, he's, he gives him a couple of thumbs, he gets time for it, but he wins. You know, not a penny. Then lately, you know, I remember sending a horse to Bath, I think it was. And uh, you know the people who seem want think, to let pretend to know everything. I had a fellow called Carson. <laughs> I think W. Car uh, this young Carson. Uh, William Carson. William Carson, mm -hmm. right? Grandson of. Uh, grandson of, and of course everybody said, "Oh no, Barney wouldn't trust him." You know what I mean? There's no way he'll be a jigger today. Of course, I think he wanted eight or ten to one.
Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Al Bastiat Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.